Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, and welcome to the Sailing and Cruising the East Coast of United States podcast. I'm Bela Musitz. And I'm Mike Wasserman. This is our podcast about sailing and cruising on the East Coast of the United States. Today, we're going to take a little bit of a deviation from that uh, because we're going to talk about sailing around the world. Uh, Today's guest is Amy Alton, who, along with her husband, David, purchased a new catamaran in 2014 and sailed around the world. They finished their circumnavigation in 2020, a few weeks before the COVID pandemic hit. You know what? They have a YouTube channel, and it's called Out Chasing Stars, where they have documented their around-the-world travel. Then they spent the better part of 2021 sailing on the Chesapeake Bay, which is also on their YouTube channel. Amy and I had a great conversation, and I broke it into two parts. Part one is about the circumnavigation, and part two is about sailing on the Chesapeake and Amy's writing career. Yep, she's also an author. What a talented individual. No doubt. Bela, I'm really interested to hear this interview. I'm fascinated by the concept when somebody changes careers um, from a something like engineering to into life on a boat, right? And going all the way around the world and spending years and years on the boat. So this is fascinating. And I'm also interested. I mean, I love the East Coast, but I'm also interested to hear a little bit about uh, the shores beyond uh, the Northeast United States. So let's jump right into it. Yep. Sounds good. So this is part one. This will be about the circumnavigation. And part two, uh, which will follow this episode, will be about the Chesapeake Bay and the books that Amy has written. Let's dive right in. Hello, listeners. This is Bela. And today we have a wonderful guest. Uh, And it's a couple that uh, sailed around the world and also spent uh, a year in the Chesapeake Bay, in addition to sailing around the world. So we're going to break this podcast into two parts. And uh, part one will be uh, about sailing around the world, buying the boat, and sort of how they made that decision and and how how it all went. And then part two, we'll be talking about the Chesapeake Bay, because after all, this is a podcast about sailing and cruising the East Coast of the United States. Uh, So today, my guest is Amy Alton. Uh, Welcome to the show, Amy. Thank you for having me. Yeah, sure. So uh, tell me a little bit about your life pre-sailing around the world. Absolutely. I was always raised around boats, actually, which surprises a lot of people because David was not, which is kind of the opposite as it goes with most couples. My grandfather had a boat company. My dad had a boat company. My uncle had a sailboat. My dad had a sailboat. My stepdad had a sailboat. So I grew up around boats my entire life. And I went to university for a degree in mechanical engineering, which is unfortunately not as helpful on the boat as one would think. Doesn't teach me nearly as much about diesel engines as I would have liked. 
But I worked as an engineer for about a year and a half, and then my dad passed away. And I bought his company, which was in the dinner cruise industry, and ran that business for about four years. I had already met David. My dad had taken David out on his first sale, and David kind of fell in love with it. Whereas I had been around boats all my life, I don't know that I would have necessarily called myself a sailor prior to leaving on Starry Horizons, but David really took to it, and together with his enthusiasm for it, I definitely got a lot more into sailing. And we were able to do things like charter in the Caribbean and take our sailboat out for day day sails around Galveston Bay. Oh, very nice. So it turns out you and I went to the same university. Yes, we did. I was there a few years before you were. We both went to Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, and uh, we both have degrees in mechanical engineering. Yes. And I have the same disappointment in my mechanical engineering degree (laughs) that it doesn't help me very much on the boat, other than sort of the intuitive knowledge that it sort of gives you and the confidence to sort of figure things out. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I never took a course in diesel engines or how they work or, you know, how, how electrical systems work, et cetera. So very nice. Yeah. I, I think it was very much about figuring out how you learn and how to problem solve. Um, and that does come in handy a lot on the boat. Oh yeah. Exceptionally handy on the boat and in life in general. So Mm -hmm. what was there a moment in time so you guys are together, you're, you're liking sailing, you're going cruising, you're chartering. So was there a moment in time that, that you know, you guys woke up one morning and said, you know what, we're going to buy a brand new boat and sail around the world? With my dad getting sick and passing away, that was a pretty big impetus for us having mm. this idea that we wanted to really embrace life. Unfortunately, my dad had been a cruiser. He sailed a... Um, <clears throat> excuse me, a small catamaran from the Galveston Bay area to Florida and the Bahamas and back. And I joined him for some of that. And, you know, that was one of the things that my dad talked about in the last few days of his life, but he was like, I'm really glad I got to do that trip. And he got to spend time with me and other interesting people who visited and experience very different parts of life. So when my dad passed away, that was kind of in the back of our minds. But then I had this obligation of running the business, an obligation that I chose to take on of running the business. And we got to a point with the business where obviously it had very little to do with my degree. It's a very challenging industry to be in because you are running a restaurant on a boat. So (laughs) it's like two very expensive things to do. Um, So we got to the point where I said, you know, I I didn't really plan to do this forever. I wanted to to run it for the time that I've done, but I think it's time to decide what we're going to do next. And we had been living pretty frugally and saving. And so we thought, okay, well, if I'm going to sell the business, then we have, we have this opportunity where I, I could be between jobs or, um, at loose ends. <laughs> yes. So why don't we take this opportunity to think about going cruising? And, and this was a, you know, probably a two year process as in cruising has always been, had always been in the back of our mind, <coughs> but 
when I decided I was ready to sell the business, we started to look at, okay, well, how do we transition? And and that was the uh, probably about a two-year process yeah. to transition out of the company, sell it, and move on board the boat. So at first, was it sort of, you know, the typical cruising life of going to the Caribbean, living on the boat for either all full-time or, you know, nine months out of the year? Or was it really like, you know what, we're going to sail around the world? Oh, Bella, we went into the deep end. (laughs) (laughs) I look back on it and think it's just a little crazy how we did it. And, And I understand where people might think that's a little bit over the top. Our first overnight sail together was picking up our new boat from the factory and sailing across the Bay of Biscay for three nights which is a notorious body of water that's yes. very challenging. And we we had done some outfitting of the boat in La Rochelle, but we were sailing quite a bit bare bones compared to what we do now. And we we call it a self-delivery. We picked up the boat ourselves in the factory and we sailed it to Florida over three different passages and uh, and then did most of our outfitting work in Florida itself. Wow. So I, and you guys have a YouTube channel. Uh, We do. uh, I think it's Out Chasing Stars. Is that correct? That is correct. Yes. And I have watched uh, a fair number of those episodes. And one of the episodes I I clearly remember was you guys picking up your new boat and it sits on this fancy trailer that probably some mechanical engineer designed. (laughs) And, (laughs) And it's going through these narrow streets and roads and they're tilting the boat like... 45 degrees on its side while some guy got it has this big long pole that he's pushing up the the electrical wires between the telephone poles so the boat doesn't hit the wires it was like i I just sat there and said oh my gosh it's it reminded me of the person who builds the boat in the basement and then figures how am i going to get it out of here (laughs) yes it is a lot like that that was our very first video in La Rochelle, and it was really fascinating because we are in the car behind this uh, this um, trailer, and there's a little chase car behind it, too. And we're watching our boat, which, thank goodness, we hadn't done, like, the official handover yet, so the boat was not our responsibility. We're watching our boat getting lowered to just inches from the highway or raised up over street signs and under trees. And this little chase car behind it is hopping the curb, going from one side all the way to the other, checking. It's like having a personal rearview mirror um, one side to the other, making sure that our boat fits on these tiny, narrow streets. It was amazing. It was really an interesting introduction into what boat building is like and, and that I think it's an aspect of the handover that not a lot of people get to see. Yeah. Yeah. That was just incredible. Absolutely incredible. So you guys pick up the boat. And then, like you said, we, our first overnight passage is Bay of Biscayne. Uh, yes. If you were, if you were going to, knowing what you know now, if you were going to buy a new boat, because you, you brought a brand new boat there, um, would you do it the same way? Well, if we had a magic eight ball, we wouldn't have, (laughs) but that is actually a financial consideration because when we bought our boat, it was going to be more financially reasonable to outfit the boat in Florida, in the United States. But shortly after the Euro crashed, 
and the price of our new boat dropped quite significantly and it in it would have been cheaper mm. to work in the European Union. Um, but in hindsight, of course, how could we have known sure, that? Sure, sure. And we're definitely not unhappy with the work that got done in Florida. I think there are a lot of aspects of our boat that we're still we still continue to be very pleased with. And we get a lot of compliments on our boat and the the things that we've done to outfit her for comfortable living and world circumnavigating. Now, in terms of the passage. It's interesting because a lot of boats, you have um, the Lagoons, Amels, uh, the Fontaine Peugeots, Nautitex, and I'm sure that there are a few other monohull brands that I'm not as familiar with who are being launched in that part of France. So you have a lot of people who are starting their, their journey there. And crossing the Bay of Biscay is not terribly uncommon in that scenario. When we did it, we were very nervous. I was I was very nervous, I'll admit. And our mentality was, okay, it's three days. If we get to Spain and it was miserable, we'll hire someone to do the rest of the way. And we got to Spain and we thought, okay, we did it. This next leg is seven days. We'll do these seven days. If it's miserable, we'll hire someone once we get to the Canary Islands. And then we got to the Canary Islands and it was all right, well, 25, 26 days to Miami. I think we can do it. <laughs> and we did it. And did you guys do that as part of a rally the from the Canaries to Miami or you guys did it solo? We did it solo. Yeah, very nice. So I guess maybe a different way to ask my uh, earlier question is, are there advantages? If you had to do it again, would you pick up the boat at the factory like you did, you know, and sort of outfit it? once you sort of get it or would you pick it up from a dealer uh, in Florida and have them do sort of the commissioning? In retrospect, we, first of all, we probably wouldn't advocate for buying a new boat. It's got its own set of challenges and it's very difficult. But I think one of the great things about David and I is that we do take very good care of the boat and to think about putting the boat in someone else's hands, whether you're talking about a shipping company or talking about hiring a captain and crew, we have heard plenty of horror stories yeah. about both methods. Yeah. And I think that we did a great job taking care of the boat on the way, despite being pretty inexperienced in that type of distance. And at the same time, it also gave us an opportunity to really, really get to know our boat. So while we were in La Rochelle and having a company do different things to our boat, like installing the water maker or um, doing some electrical installations, stuff like that. Stuff that we would do now because yes. we know how to do it. Yeah. At the time, we didn't have the knowledge or experience. And we were able to sit there and watch these companies, uh, these people, do these projects for us. And we learned. And we were also able to influence the way things were done on our own boat especially because we got it so bare bones from the factory. And I think that was really beneficial for us. Yeah. 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 You, there, there's certainly been uh, uh, positive stories and horror stories of either scenario, <laughs> right? <laughs> yes. No matter, yes. regardless of where you take delivery. And I think one of the things that people, uh, you know, in the rest of our things that we buy, like you buy a new car, you pick it up from the dealer 
you don't have to do anything to it. I mean, maybe you it's get some very different. Yeah, maybe you get some aftermarket stuff put on it. But this is more akin to buying a car in the 50s where, you know, when you bought it, it didn't really come very well put together. But today, a car is like unbelievable. But it's interesting how the marine industry has a long way to go to get to that part. And I, and I can sort of understand that. The volumes are different. It's, you know, different, whole different game. Uh, but people's expectation, oh, I'm getting a new boat. Well, it's, it's not, uh, not like buying a new car. Yes. And I think there's a lot of differences between now, granted, I have never bought a used boat to go sailing, to go long-term cruising, but I think there's a lot of differences between the two because with a new boat, as we learned, you are starting from a complete blank slate. So the factory asks, well, do you want this installed? And we say, okay, well, we need to research what this does. And, and then they're offering one brand and is that the brand we want? And is it, does it fit the specifications and qualifications that we require? And then for something like, example, a water maker, there are so many different brands and there's no general consensus among cruisers about what type to go with, nor among the factories. Right. So it's just uh, a little bit of a wild, wild west with things like that. Yeah, it sure is. Okay. So you guys uh, sail across the Atlantic yes. um, and uh, then you guys spent some time in the, in the Caribbean? We spent. Oh, I'm sorry. You went to Florida, right? You went to Florida, yep. did some more work on the boat. And then what, where'd yep. you go from there? I'm sorry. I, I missed a step there. That's okay. The work in Florida took about twice as long as we thought it would. So we got done in the Tampa Bay area and said, okay, we have just a few weeks until hurricane season starts. Mm. Let's go to the Bahamas, enjoy a little bit of time, and then we'll escape up to Nova Scotia, actually. We did three weeks through, basically we did Bimini through Nassau, or no, I'm sorry, Bimini through Marsh Harbor over a, th a three-week period. And then we sailed nine days up to Nova Scotia, where we spent six weeks. And I know you recently did an episode about Nova Scotia, yeah. and I have to echo everything that was said. It's an amazing uh, part of the East Coast, and we loved it. Yeah. The, we cruised the Bredor Lakes, which, which was just absolutely beautiful. And Halifax and Lundenburg were fascinating. Oh, my gosh. The maritime heritage there is so fun. And then we went to Maine for about a month and then started to make our way south for the uh, cruising season. We stopped in Bermuda for about 10 days and then we shot down to the British Virgin Islands and we worked our way through the Caribbean chain for three months. And then we went for the Panama Canal. Oh, okay. <laughs> right. Yep. So uh, there's the two of you on the boat. Do you guys other bring other people or other crew with you sometimes? Or is it pretty much the about two of you? About 99% of the time, it was just the two of us. Yeah. We did have, um, for major passages, we had two with guests on board. One was the passage up from Bahamas to Nova Scotia with David's brother, Thomas, who is not a sailor. And then the second one was my uncle Jim, who is a sailor who sailed with us from Cape town to St. Helena in 2020. Yeah. So those were, those were the two exceptions to the rule, but for the rest of the time, it was just David and I. Yeah. And then through the Panama canal, through the Panama canal, which is fascinating. 
And and especially from an engineering perspective, I mean, it's one of the engineering marvels yeah. of the world. So it was really fun to go see. And actually, one of my friends from RPI, you know, we said we're doing this thing. And she said, well, I want to come because this is an engineering thing. That's so cool. And then we spent, we crossed the Pacific. We spent two seasons in the South Pacific, which is our favorite cruising ground. We spent a cyclone season in New Zealand. And then after our second season in the South Pacific, we went to Australia, spent seven months in Australia. And then after that, we cruised up through Southeast Asia, across the Indian Ocean, around the Cape of Good Hope in South Africa, and then up the South Atlantic back to the Caribbean. Right. And, you know, there's a lot of people who go out to the South Pacific. Maybe they go to New Zealand or Australia and the rest the- Getting back from there to here is not all that easy. (laughs) That is true. That is true. And that is something that we have considered um, or it it has um, prevented us, I would say, from really considering going across the Pacific again in the near future. Because at a certain point, we would have to say, all right, well, you know, basically we've gotten to Australia and what do we do now? Yeah. And uh, yeah, the the cruising in the Indian Ocean is quite different from everywhere else. So it's a it's a difficult decision to make. Yeah, which way? In what ways is it different? There's a lot more more bureaucracy. There's a lot of expensive places to cruise. The Maldives and Seychelles were costly. There's a lot of tourism. We cruised up through Thailand, which was one of the places that I was really excited to go to. And I did enjoy a lot of aspects of Thailand, not necessarily the cruising though. It's very touristed for the time of year we were there. The water clarity wasn't very good. Um, There's a lot of trash in Southeast Asia. There's a lot of overfishing. I love the food. I love the people. I love the culture and, um, and the nature, but you know, for a cruising spot, it didn't have as many rewards as I'd hoped. Yeah. And we see similar things in in the Seychelles is very modern. The Maldives is Maldives is actually really fascinating because tourism was really not a thing for a long time. And then they decided to open it up for private island resorts. So the only way you could come to the Maldives was to visit a private island and there was no like intermingling with locals. Recently, that's changed, and now villages are allowed to have guest mm. houses where people can come and stay. But you still have a lot of this luxury, overwater bungalow type feel. And then for the Indian Ocean, you also get difficulties with weather. Mm. And it's a lot of the cruising there is straddling the equator, like in Indonesia or in the Maldives. It's very hot, not a lot of wind. And then getting diesel is challenging. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's, it's got complications for sure. I, so our route went kind of, you know, up through Southeast Asia and then back down the Indian ocean kind of on a bit of a zigzaggy diagonal, but some people go from Australia to the Southern Indian ocean route, which, and I forget the order of the islands, but there's Christmas Island and Cocos Keeling. And then you get Mauritius and reunion, and then to Madagascar yes. and then down. Yeah. So that's a shorter route. Um, and it has pros and cons too, because you're going to be more southerly. 
And uh, I think a lot of people struggled with more wind than they anticipated. Mm. So yeah. it's tough. Do you it's think tough. Do you think if the uh, Suez Canal route kind of opened back up, you know, it's not a r- real safe place to get there, uh, would that change your mind? Or you think that would change the attractiveness of, of going that way? I think nowadays, I, I remember reading a report by um, uh, Jimmy Cornell that looked at statistics of clearance ports around the world. And I think this was a, a 2000, maybe a 2010 report or something. And about 95% of the traffic was going through Cape Town versus 5% going oh, through the okay. Cape Canal. They're like oddly skewed statistics, but that was in the prime of piracy Pir- issues. Yes. Now there is a Facebook group called, I think it's Cruising the Red Sea or something like that. Sailing the, re- sailing the Red Sea. And it is starting to be more popular. I don't know what the statistics are, mm. but I'm guessing it's getting closer to 50-50. However, I have read a few reports. of, For example, actually, there's a book by Julie Bradley called uh, Escape the Ordinary. Yes. And then the sequel is Crossing Pirate Waters, I, I believe is the title. So Crossing Pirate Waters is about leaving from, I think it starts when they're in New Zealand and they go through the Red Sea and through the Suez Canal. And it was really interesting to read about their experience doing that. Difficulties with bureaucracy, difficulties with weather, um, health issues, which were pretty scary. So I, I don't know. I think that I was pleased to do the route that we did going through South Africa in part because I, I do really enjoy South Africa. I've been there before mm. and we knew that we were going to enjoy it. There's a lot to like about it. It is challenging, but yeah. <laughs> I, I don't, I, I think if I were to do it again, I would still go the South Africa route. Yeah. So you guys go around the horn and then where, where do you shoot to from there? Yeah. Not a lot of places to stop after you get around <laughs> South Africa. Some people go to Namibia, which we did not do, but we sailed, um, I think I'm going to get these dates right. I hope I do. I believe it was 14 days from Cape Town to St. Helena, 12 days from St. Helena to Brazil, and then 14 days from Brazil to Antigua. So St. Helena is a British territory in the South Atlantic Ocean. There's a few other islands nearby, but we just chose to stop in St. Helena. And then in Brazil, which is difficult cruising as well, we stopped in Recife, which partially was because we have friends who live there. So that was that was kind of an easy choice sure. for us. Sure. Yeah. And uh, so when you do these long passages, I'm always interested. Uh, uh, how do you do watches if there's just two of you? How, what's your typical you know passage day like? Sure. We do what we call a soft seven schedule. We have one one shift that is firm, and that is from 7 p.m. to 2 a.m. So I am on watch after dinner from 7 p.m. to 2 a.m. And then David sets an alarm. He comes up, and I go to sleep. And I sleep as long as I can, which the first day might be like <coughs> my regular wake-up time, 6 or 7 a.m. Yeah, yeah. And then 
my second day is like, oh, it's 11. (laughs) And then I start to get more of a medium ground. Once I wake up, David goes down to sleep and he takes a nap. And then when he wakes up, I go down to sleep and take a nap. And then I come up, usually cook dinner, and we start the whole thing all over again. Now, on longer passages, when we get into the groove, which is about day four or five, I'm usually sleeping enough in my night shift or in my night sleep that I don't need to take a nap in the afternoon. So the first few days of passage, we're not, we're like passing each other right, right. <laughs> and just saying hi, checking in, maybe eating lunch together or whatever. And then one of us is going to sleep. But towards the end of a passage, we're up in the afternoon together and kind of enjoying quiet solitude and passage life. Yeah. So what are your sort of rules? Like uh, if one of you is off watch down below sleeping and the other one is on watch and something goes, something happens, whatever it is, and you need a sail change or whatever. What, how do you guys handle that? What are your sort of rules that you have about when these things happen, you absolutely must wake some, the other person up or, you know, these things you don't have to, how do you handle that? First of all, we do a handover at every shift change. So we sit down and talk about, you know, what does the, what are the conditions looking like? What's our autopilot set out? What is our destination that we're aiming for? Cause it may be a wind vane or it may be an actual um, waypoint. We talk about local traffic um, and we also do uh, every three hours we fill out our log. So we know exactly what the conditions were like three hours prior and that's a pretty good record for us to have. Our boat has a full enclosure that surrounds the cockpit and the helm station. It's We also set the boat up so that most of the lines lead to our helm inside the enclosure. So, for example, if I need to reef the Genoa, I can easily do that from within the helm. And when we're going to an evening when, when it's getting to be evening and we're going into our night shifts, we will check the weather forecast and say, okay, well, it's going to be squally tonight. Let's put a preemptive reef in the yeah. mainsail. Yeah. And then I can play easily with the Genoa to furl it up or unfurl it and adjust our speed accordingly. On long passages, it's so much easier to be, it's so much easier to be conservative because you've got all of this time ahead of you. And so you know, when you're on a 19 day passage, right. well, if you get in one day later, it's not really going to make a big right. difference. So long passages often tend to be much easier on everybody. And the worst passages are two night ones. Um, but if we need to take the mainsail down or put a reef in the mainsail, we put our harnesses on, wake each other up. We get out there, um, put our lights on um, and, you know, keep in keep in touch we have headlamps with red lights if we don't put our actual like spotlight on we've got personal ais beacons attached to our deck vest our inflatable deck vest we've got headsets which most couples use for anchoring but also are excellent for if someone needs to be out on the bow and someone needs to get the helm so we can stay in communication we learned early on that like it is, especially if it's windy and you're struggling with like a head sail that's unfurling, screaming at each other is not doesn't, excellent. <laughs> so, <laughs> it doesn't improve the situation one iota. 
It does not. <laughs> um, I mean, it's just it's scary when you think you can't hear your partner, right? Or you, or you might misunderstand them. So yeah, those are those are things we are definitely pretty solid with for long passages. David is pretty self sufficient. I ask him for help most uh, more often than he help asks me for help. But we're both pretty comfortable with understanding like the rules of the road, not that you see a whole lot of boats out on the ocean um, or interpreting lights or AIS signals or radar or anything like yeah. that. We've yeah. definitely gained a lot of experience with that. Cool. So uh, your YouTube channel. Yes. Uh, how, how does that change what you guys do on a daily basis? Well, the YouTube channel is a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It we for our circumnavigation we created kind of a travel log videos so we're filming the things that we do the adventures that we have the experiences we're encountering and that is a lot of effort we have to create kind of a storyboard and think about how what we film tells the story of our adventure or of the place we need to do voiceovers when we haven't properly recorded things. We need to choose background music. Um, David and I worked together towards the last couple years of the circumnavigation. So basically, I would run through the footage, pick out the best clips, because we often have to film things 10 or 15 times, and then put them together in a timeline. And then David would go through um, and trim and create transitions and pick music and do voiceovers sure. and things like that. So all of that adds up to a lot of work. On the other hand, we have these 160 or 180 videos or whatever chronicling the biggest adventure we will ever have in our life, right. I'm right. sure. And as we've found with photos, videos, and blog posts, we forget things so easily. I often go through photos or read blogs or watch the videos and think, oh, my God, we did that? I don't remember that at all. So it's this wonderful record for us sure. that hopefully we'll have for the rest of our lives. It's also enabled us to really have a introductory point for strangers. And we've been lucky that enough people watch our videos. We've been enough places in the world where we get to meet people who have been watching our videos for years and we have an instant point of conversation yeah, yeah. and we have an instant resource for us. So there have been places where people help us find new parts in Singapore or they invite us to use their dock in Australia or we uh, go on an adventure with them in, you know, mm -hmm. Thailand or whatever. Yeah. So we get to do, um, really interesting things and it, it does make uh, having a YouTube channel worth it. Now our videos have transitioned a little bit more into sharing knowledge. So we, David and I might pick a topic to talk about the, our most recent one was five things we wish we'd known right. before we'd gone cruising. Yeah. And that's nice because we get to write a script, talk to the camera, film it. Usually it takes us a little bit less takes than um, <laughs> just filming a whole bunch of random things. And then we put in B-roll, clean it up, and publish it. And I think they're really um, maybe not as interesting to people who will never go cruising, but I think they're very resourceful for cruisers or people who want to go cruising. 
Yeah, yeah. There, there's this, there's this interesting challenge, right? Right. Some channels are very share the knowledge focused. Other ones mm-hmm. are very adventure focused. And and you know some that, that I like, I like sort of the blend, right? There's there's some <laughs> adventure stuff. There's some share the knowledge stuff. Um, yeah. And and so like on the adventure ones, do you do a lot mm-hmm. of like kind of pre-production planning? I mean, do you say, okay, we're, we're going to this week, here's the things we're going to do. We're going to go visit this site and, you know, we're going to take the drone with us and we're going to do all this stuff or do, or do you, is it more of a, let's go and see what happens. It definitely takes some planning because we have to sit down and say, okay, well, we're going to go do this thing. And what do we need to bring with us? We have several cameras, several lenses. We've got several drones and then all of the complex accessories to handle sound and light and stuff like that. So it takes planning in that sense. Um, we don't storyboard an intense amount. I, I know there are plenty of people who do, um, but and and possibly the videos would have been easier if we'd done more. Yeah. But we didn't. So we. Um, but but we do we are always mindful that we need to stop and uh, get the cameras out and film what our intentions are and yeah. like make an introduction to what we're about to do and then talk our way through it so that it's not just a visual representation of what we've done but it's also about us doing the thing yeah yeah that's cool so we've been chatting here for close to 30 minutes i think or actually over 30 minutes so let's let's close part one here talking about going around the world and uh we'll uh take a pause and take a break and then we'll start recording part two where we'll talk about the chesapeake and we'll talk about your books because you are you are an author and uh, i want to hear about that as well so uh sounds great yeah let's stop this here and uh, on to part two in a few minutes Bela, that was a really interesting conversation on a number of levels. Kind of let's start at the highest level. Let's start with going around the world. And the part about cruising in the South Pacific is really interesting to me. The downsides that Amy talked about were fascinating. Like issues like water clarity and trash and the ability to access diesel fuel. I mean, those are things that in my limited experience in the Northeast haven't really been an issue. Are are those issues in the U.S. that you've seen? Well, certainly uh, access to, you know, fuel and water, um, things like that, it, it is really not a problem for the most part of the East Coast. Any marina you go to, typically you can get free water. You know, in this country, we, we have an abundance of water uh, and we sometimes abuse that privilege uh, compared to other countries. Uh, you go to other parts of the world and uh, water is a very precious uh, uh, asset and um, even in the Bahamas, for example, most marinas you go to will charge you for water. So if you want to fill up your water tanks on your boat, you're going to pay for it, um, you know, per liter, just like just like getting fuel. Um, diesel fuel is available, but, you know, here every marina has diesel fuel. That may not be the, uh, the case in other parts of the world. Uh, so sort of that sort of infrastructure stuff that we all depend upon here in this country uh, is not all that prevalent. I mean, you have to remember, a lot of these places are island nations, and everything that c- comes there is brought in by a ship or an airplane for the most part. They don't they don't have an oil refinery on on the land there, so it's got to get brought in. And chances are they don't use all that much fuel because 
the island's not that big and most people walk or have bicycles, right? Or they have little, you know, 50cc uh, motorcycles that, that they zip around on. So it's a different world. And I think that's one of the interesting parts about traveling around and seeing these sort of island nations uh, where not only is the cultural experience very different uh, and their traditions are very different, but also seeing how people live and how much little uh, man-made things you actually need to survive uh, in this world. Um, and of course, the notion of, you know, water clarity, um, you know, and pollution, et cetera, that's a problem all over the world. Uh, we have uh, woken up in this country uh, in the last 50 years and have tightened a lot of our regulations, which has, you know, really improved some of the water clarity. I can remember as a kid uh, swimming in the Hudson River, and uh, it was pretty, pretty gross. And, uh, you know, down around Poughkeepsie and where I grew up. And um, you go there now, and the water clarity is a lot better. Uh, it's a, it's, it's amazing improvement. Um, but those regulations um, are not existent all around the world. And there are other places in the world where people still dump a lot of stuff into the water, where they still, you know, dump things out into landfills that are not covered and treated and doing all the things that we do. So I think that's the whole beauty of going around the world and seeing other cultures, whether you go around the world in a sailboat or whether you just visit other countries on an airplane, and you don't have to visit all of them, of course, but you get this insight into, number one, how fortunate we are, and number two, the, the various different ways that human beings live and survive and thrive in the world. It's, there isn't, there's no one right way. <laughs> there's lots of different ways that, that you can do this. So yeah. How about you, Mike? What do you think about all that kind of stuff? fascinating i mean you know me i've taken students all over the world i've lived in a couple of different places and yeah there isn't better or worse in an absolute sense there's different right and there might be better or worse for you right but that's not better or worse for for overall but i do i do even see it here in germany which is you know uh, economically developed right country uh like the u.s but yeah we have a much different philosophy just towards something as simple as water or trash Right. Um, much more yeah. um, efficiency oriented. So definitely you're going to see differences once you get outside the U.S. Um, but, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, would you have any interest in going around the world in a, in a sailboat? I, I don't think so. I mean, you know, if I was 30 instead of almost 70, <laughs> maybe uh, that not, not to use a bad pun here, but that ship has passed or that ship has <laughs> sailed for me. Nicely done. Right? Yeah. yeah, it's, you know, uh, and, and when I was 30, I had other stuff going on in my life, right? It wasn't, it wasn't something that I even thought about. So, um, I think that, uh, I like traveling. I like going to other countries, uh, because of the jobs I've had in the past. I've, I've been fortunate to, to go to a fair number of countries, uh, both in Europe and in the far East. And, uh, I've always found, found that fascinating. And I was very fortunate that I was able to do that. Um, but yeah, for me, probably, probably not on my bucket list, if you will, to go sail around the world. I, I, I enjoy the sailing we do now. It's at the right intensity. It's at the right, you know, uh, amount of time. And it's a family adventure, which I really enjoy. So um, I'm quite content with the, 
uh, limiting my sailing to uh, the East Coast and Narragansett Bay in New England and, and going out for, for, you know, three to four days at a time and, you know, maybe going out for two weeks and that would be a long trip for us. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I told you this. I sailed in New Zealand once. We chartered a boat with some friends of ours. Um, I mean, I didn't drive, obviously, but, you know, I could see doing that is flying to a place, right, which I know is not so good for the environment, but flying to a place and then chartering a boat with other people might be fun. Or if yeah. you came over here, Bela, it'd be fun. We could go charter a boat for a couple of days and or, yeah. or, or even for just a day and get out on the water here uh, would be would be really fun. Um but yeah, it's a big commitment. It's physically grueling. It's right mentally grueling. Sure, um, I'm sure it's incredibly rewarding, right? And yeah, but but it's a big investment, you know. And there's an not without risk, right? Yeah, yeah. And and you know I, I, that you brought up the point of chartering. It is amazing now how uh, popular chartering has has become, and you can charter boats in many many parts of the world. It, it used to be you know the British Virgin Islands, and that was it. Uh, and you know, the Mediterranean has a big charger charter business. The South Pacific has a big charter business, uh, Vietnam, Thailand, et cetera. You can charter boats there. So you can do it sort of, uh, in a, in a hopscotch way. And there's a, there's a guy named, uh, Lioness Wilson, who's actually a professor. Uh, I think an economics professor down in, in Mississippi or Georgia. I can't remember exactly Louisiana, one of those States. And he wrote a book, and he is sailing around the world part time. So what he what he does is he you know has summers off as a, a professor, uh, and he'll sail for two months, and he'll sail, you know, however far he can get <laughs> in two months. He parks the boat, he leaves it there, and then he uh, uh, comes back a year later and continues his trek. And I've kind of lost touch of of him. Uh, but he was sort of doing sailing around the world part time as opposed to, you know, a two or three or four continuous uh, years to, to get around the world. I love that idea. It's a really interesting, creative way to, to do it. Um, yeah. Let's talk about another topic. So I thought the differences between buying a new versus a used boat were fascinating. We've talked a lot about buying boats, but we never really did this head to head comparison of new versus used and her story of picking up the boat and fitting doing the you know bringing it over to florida and doing the final fittings that was something i wasn't really totally on my radar screen honestly bela would you ever consider buying a new boat or are you firmly in the used camp yeah you know here's the challenge with a new boat Uh, as consumers we've gotten very used to buying stuff and when we buy it it works we're, we're, that, that's just the, sort of that's how things are, and and the quality of products have gotten so good in this around the world for the most part. You know, whether it be a car, I mean, you buy a car these days, you you basically, you know, they take it off the truck, and the guy might the dealer might wash it, wash it, but you turn it on, you can drive it for other, you know, a little bit of maintenance, a couple hundred thousand miles, and when you bring it home from the dealer, nothing's broken on it, everything works. And I can remember in the 50s and 60s, that wasn't the case, but yeah. certainly today it is. Even early 70s, really up until the time when Honda and Toyota kind of yeah. entered the, the U.S. market and went through their first couple of iterations because their quality wasn't great early on either. But anybody who bought cars, who hasn't bought a car pre, you know, pre-1975 or 1980, 
doesn't realize there you would have several trips back to the dealership a yeah. lot of times to fix things that were not right on your on your car yeah but that's gotten better we just bought a, a new house so we've been in it four years now and you know we moved in and everything works right it wasn't like the stove Big didn't work or we had leaky pipes or whatever right so even a house right which is hand built right with with carpenters at nails and 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 it, it works. But for some reason, and I don't understand this, this would be a nice business study, I'm sure, for, for a business class. The, the marine industry hasn't gotten there yet. So y- you buy a well, First of all, there's, there's lots of options on a boat. So you can decide, and there's, you know, people have preferences to, to, to buying this brand of, of chart plotter, i.e. GPS system and navigation system, versus another brand. You buy a car... It comes with one brand of radio, and that's it, right? Mm-hmm. You you really don't have a choice. I mean, yeah, you can put an aftermarket in it, but that means you're ripping the other one out and putting something else in. So a lot of stuff on a boat is sort of, I'll use the word aftermarket, just to, to draw a parallel to the automotive industry. Um, so that has its its challenges because it's not being installed at the factory. There's somebody else installing it. Who knows what their skill level is, et cetera. Um, and... And but still, regardless, you know, I've I've listened to a few podcasts of people who have purchased new boats and, you know, stuff just didn't work. It wasn't installed right. <laughs> and, and, and so it's just for some reason, the marine industry hasn't quite gotten there yet. And 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 I think they would benefit a lot if they did. And you're paying top dollar for these things. Right. I mean, a catamaran, you know, a 45 foot brand, a 45 foot new catamaran or a new monohull. It's going to cost you five hundred thousand dollars at least, if not more. So it's it's not like you know. I would expect something when you're paying that much money. The damn thing worked. You go out and buy an airplane for five hundred thousand dollars. It'll it flies. <laughs> it works, <laughs> right? It, you know you don't have all these challenges with it. So I don't know. I'm not sure what's going on there. Uh, I don't understand it. But I am in the you know. I think the sweet spot is like a one owner boat that, and usually when when you go to just like buying a used car, you just get there and you can tell whether it's been taken care of or not. You can, you know, have that conversation with the owner and you can sort of get the vibe that, yep, this boat's solid, it's okay. And then you just have to worry to make sure that, you know, it wasn't grounded or the wasn't dropped or hit something and put a hole in the hull or whatever. But, you know, I would, I would definitely am a used boat person because all of those challenges have been taken care of. Right. Hopefully all the leaky pipes have been fixed and all of the electronics that wasn't hooked up right have been fixed and the little other things that, you know, didn't fit properly have all been taken care of. Yeah, no, it makes sense to me. It makes sense to me. Interesting. But I just never really thought all that through. But it would be a really interesting kind of case study or analysis to do um, uh, on this. Um, so, yeah. Um, yeah. Good. Last question. Okay. Um, it was interesting to hear how much work the YouTube channel was. Um, I've never really talked to anybody that is a big YouTube person like this. Um, and it was really neat to hear how they work together as a couple, how they kind of each had their roles and took their, their tasks, which was really cool. Um, you know, I know how much work just a audio podcast is. Would you ever consider doing something like a YouTube channel? I don't think so. You know, I, and first you have to be creative. 
because you know it's not just the word, but you got to get images and you got to tell a story. Uh, you got to have a lot of patience. You got to have time, and it needs to be interesting. And you know, Mike, life isn't all that interesting, Mike. <laughs> quite frankly, yeah. so uh, you know, you got to be doing something that other people are interested in. And it, it amazes me. Like I think about this. If, if you look at a lot, at least the sailing channels, many of them are couples. Uh, and they put out an episode a week. And these episodes are typically 20 to 30 minutes long. And, you know, they're well-produced, they're well-edited, they have music, they have voiceover narration, they have all this stuff. That's like a sitcom, right? A half-hour TV show is 22 minutes long. And and there's probably 75 to 100 people who put that half-hour TV show out once a week, <laughs> For, you know, they, a season is 24 episodes or something, right? And these sailing folks are doing an episode a week just as long, like many of them, every week, 52 weeks a year. That's an incredible amount of work, yeah. right? So, uh, yeah, it's it's not... Right, it's, with, uh, with multiple cameras, with drones, yeah. with all of this stuff, with, you know, the consumer level equipment now is as good as the pro level equipment was just right. a few years ago. Um, but that takes a lot of time to master that and to integrate everything together. And Right. So the barrier to entry has come way down, mm-hmm. right? You have a free platform to publish on. Uh, the equipment prices have, you know, dropped by a factor of 100. Uh, but still, the time is the same. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? The talent that required to do this is 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 still the same. So just like sailing around the world is not on my horizon, uh, having a YouTube channel is not on my horizon either. Yeah, But, Bela, really interesting to hear from Amy and hear about this amazing adventure and this idea of just kind of quitting an engineering career and yeah. going and doing this kind of, okay, I'm going to be a, a sailing YouTube superstar. I'm going to write some nonfiction books. I'm going to have write some fiction books. Um, and work all of this together in a lifestyle that it sounds like her and her husband really adore and have really mastered. Um, really amazing to hear about and really eye-opening for me. What do you think? Should we yeah, wrap it up? I, yeah, I agree, Mike. It was very fascinating. And yeah, let's, let's give this one a wrap. All right, listeners, thanks for joining us for yet another episode. Uh, we hope that you found the conversation interesting and thought-provoking like we did. If you have questions about what we've discussed, as always, please feel free to get in touch with us. Our email is sailing the east, all one word at gmail.com. Hey, and if you enjoyed the podcast, hit that follow button on your favorite podcasting application. And hey, if you know someone who'd be a good guest for the show, uh, let us know. Uh, we'd love to uh, have them on the show. You know, warm weather is getting here, Mike. It's a sunny day today. The snow's melting. There's no more snow in the yard. I was skiing yesterday, and it was starting to look like spring up in the mountain area. So I think uh, sailing will be here soon. So signing off from upstate New York. See you soon, Mike. That's great. Yeah, it's the warm weather is here in Germany as well, Bela. The the uh, flowers are are poking up, and yeah, I mean, you know me in sailing, but I'll certainly be getting we'll be getting our kayak out and and getting that in in the water, and you know, low velocity lifestyle and all. But from over here in Münster, Germany, uh, Bela, always great to spend time with you, and we'll see everybody next time. <music>